Hey, hey, I'm back here with Evan Hux. We just finished up our uh, second night of Sunday seminars in March, where we're going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, Evan covered a lot of ground for us, and hopefully uh, during this conversation, we're going to read a, read a good bit of scripture and try to um, see what, what uh, he drew out uh, from us. Um, Evan, you want to say hey to the people? Hey, everybody. Hope you're having a great week. Awesome. So we're going to be covering um, about three and a half chapters kind of briefly and just give you some high notes from some of what we discussed here. Um, uh, We started off in verse one, and um, I'm going to read that. And then, Evan, I'm going to let you tell us how you use verse one, um, just kind of some of your your high points from how you use verse one to share the gospel, share some of the core uh, aspects of the gospel. The gospel just means good news. Um, and so verse 1 of First Thessalonians says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So what were some of the high points that, um, yeah, that you showed us the message of the gospel from verse 1? So some of the main points was just that to notice that Paul mentions both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as he's talking about the message of the gospel. And that kind of shows us that um, Jesus Christ is not the only focus when it comes to salvation, but that God has orchestrated the entire planning of Jesus coming from the beginning, and that you can't have the message of the gospel and all the events that are contained within that message um, without first having God in the beginning, you know, the creator of all things. Um, There is a prophecy all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that God was going to send a promised Messiah, a deliverer, to crush the head of Satan forever. Um, And that was all the way back in the beginning. So, Jesus might be the method of salvation, but God is the orchestrator. So I just believe you can't understand the complete gospel without um, having the full picture of who God is. Um, All three persons, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are all involved in salvation. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I know, um, and when I think of the gospel, I just think of... um, God saving sinners through Jesus Christ. Uh, but what I love about how you brought up really the, the entire Trinity, you brought up God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And I know a lot of times we even forget to remember the Holy Spirit in the gospel um, because, you know, you think about what Jesus has done for us, the grace and the peace that he offers. How do we experience that? How do we come into contact with what Jesus has done, well, we only come into contact with what Jesus has done through the Holy Spirit, and you you brought that out. And so um, it's connecting the fact that God himself is the gospel. I think that's actually a title of a book uh, by John Piper, if, any, if anybody's interested. I did not come up with that on my own. Um, so that was kind of the heart of the message. Um, this is the, the content. Uh, as we, we talked mainly about discipleship tonight, and you're saying, hey, the content Everything that ends up sort of unraveling on our journey with, with knowing and following Jesus uh, flows out of the core of the gospel, and this gospel takes a Trinitarian shape. Um, God the Father, like you said, who made us, um, Jesus who saves us, and then the Spirit who um, comes into our heart and revives us and, and connects us to Jesus. Um, the Really, the almost the rest of our time, not quite, but almost the rest of our time, you then 
framed, uh, not the message, but the, the method of maybe receiving and then giving the gospel under three headings. You did not come up with those three headings. Uh, you, we see those three headings in verses two and three of chapter one. So let me just read those and then, um, then we'll kind of take it one by one. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you drew out those three things, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. And that really became the outline for seeing the rest of this book, uh, at least for the first maybe three chapters of this book. So why don't we take them one at a time? Um, why, don't, why don't you read the sections that, that you saw correlating to each one um, and then share a few brief thoughts, uh, a few brief high points from, from why you saw that. So the first one you said was the work of faith. Um, what did you, what, what part of this passage did you see relating to the work of faith? And then maybe a few thoughts on how you see that playing out. So the passage of first Thessalonians I saw relating to works of faith was most of was all of chapter one, um, looking at verses two through 10, um, and kind of how I explained, um, the work of faith is that just like we were talking about earlier, it's, works that only the Holy Spirit can strengthen us to do. So without first having a relationship with Jesus Christ through the Spirit, these works of faith would be impossible. So when I picture works of faith, um, I just picture sharing the gospel truth. I think of loving one another as God loved us, um, just things that would be unattainable if we didn't have the Holy Spirit. So it's not that I'm kind of teaching a works-based faith because we know that we cannot work our way to God, but just that once we are justified and once we have a trust and a belief and a relationship with God, that He then gives us power from the Spirit to do things that we couldn't have done before we had a relationship with Him. So it's truly just works and things that we are able to do because God is giving us the strength to do those things. Yeah, I'm going to read um, verses four. I'm going to read verses four to ten, and just notice a couple times in this passage it mentions Holy Spirit, and we see how Paul is attributing their faith and the, the outworking of their faith to the Holy Spirit. So, starting in verse four of chapter one, it says, "For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you." Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Uh, for not only as the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
just an awesome passage. But again, a couple of times in there, you see the Holy Spirit. And then uh, particularly verse nine, I, I see like faith at work as someone is turning from worshiping an idol to now serving the living God. That can only take place as the Holy Spirit works faith into our hearts so that we now love God, seek God, desire God, and serve God. Um, you said this a couple of times in, in the talk throughout the night. Is like, these are things that are not natural. They're not things that um, we, a sinful man could do. So they must be things that the Holy Spirit w- uh, must work in our hearts. All right, so then, uh, so first we had faith, then we had love. So um, what did you see in the next section in chapter two about love? And if you want to read some of those verses, uh, feel free. Uh, or if not, I'll end up probably reading them. Um, so what were some of those verses and just some of the high points about how you saw love in this chapter two? Yeah, so I kind of, I looked at the passage starting in chapter two, verse one, and I went to verse 12, um, but I kind of illustrated how the works that Paul does for the people in Thessalonica are, like you said, unnatural. The way that he works for them um, day and night so that he wouldn't burden them with, you know, giving of finances. Um, We also see in chapter 2, verse 7, he says that they were gentle among them, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So the way that I kind of um, explained this love is I use the Greek term for it. The Greek word agape is what's used in this scripture, and it is a love that truly describes the way that God feels about us and is willing to basically give himself up um, and to do everything possible to just desire us and reconnect us back in relationship with him. So this kind of love is only a love that we can learn from God. It's not self-seeking. It's not selfish. It's not seeking to possess anything, and it's not given to people that are even worthy of love, which I think is one of the main points that sticks out to me is that this is such a great love to be demonstrated to all people because we learn in the Bible that we are not worthy of God's love, but he still gives it to us anyway, demonstrating Um, his love for us in so many magnificent ways. So I just thought that the way that Paul is showing his love towards the people in Thessalonica, even striving to see them when he is under affliction, just wanting to get back to them, striving to seek after them, just like God does to us, really is a great symbol. You know, it's a great illustration of how God truly loves and pursues us day and night. Um, So yeah, I thought Paul was a great example of just, you know, the love of God showing itself through persons um, that care about one another. It's a a needed, I think, example. Um, You think about the ways that we think about love in our modern day. Uh, It is so selfish. It is 
always um, like it, I almost feel like the, the like the motto of our age is love yourself. Um, and here Paul's literally flipping it on its head. It, and again, that's we, we talked about um, how this is related to the gospel. We're looking first at Jesus and what he's done for us. And then that that um, real love, that self-sacrificing love, that genuine love that's that's not merited now begins to shape Paul's love. And I think it really challenges us to, to consider seeking God for this kind of love. Uh, in fact, later in the passage, we'll see this is one of the things that Paul was praying for them because he wanted God to work this in their lives as well, that they would begin to love each other in ways that are um, sacrificial and unmerited. Um, all right, so then you went from faith to love and then to hope. And so why don't you kind of run us through this next section and show us where you got the concept of hope from and uh, just a few thoughts on why that stuck out to you. Right. So the the first verse that I took it from was back in chapter one, verse three. And I really just loved how um, it was said kind of like a phrase. It says the steadfastness of hope. Um, And then from there, I kind of used chapter 2, verses 13 through 20, to kind of illustrate that. Um, The first thing that I kind of related this to was the hope to see others come to know God. So it's kind of like not only having hope or um, as an aspiration or a dream, but a hope that you are actively working towards. Because Paul... He could have just sat where he was and hoped for other people to know Christ. But what he did was he put that hope into action and actually went and met with these people face to face. So this Christian context of the word hope doesn't just mean that we are dreaming something up that we never expect to happen, but that we are hoping for something we are actively working to make happen. Um, So the other thing other than just hope to see others seek God, but is also a hope that is related to faith, Um, a hope in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it's explained in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we'll talk about that a little bit next week. But not only does he hope for people to be discipled and know God, but he teaches them to have a hope for the future because we have a Savior that is coming back for us and didn't just leave us here to learn a lot about him, but he is actively seeking us as well. So not only to hope for others to have a relationship with God, but just hope in our future in Jesus to be able to spend eternity with him. And that's that's kind of outlined in verses 13 through 20, where we see Paul kind of hoping all of these things for the people in Thessalonica. Yeah, man, I really see that like the the convergence of both of those ideas in verses 19 and 20, uh, where he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus? And there it is at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. And I, I don't want to get too far ahead because there's a couple things in the next chapter that kind of speak to this as well. But one of the reasons I love that you framed this whole talk tonight around discipleship is I feel like so many times we can think of discipleship like it's something that happens at a factory and that there's like an assembly line. And if we can just kind of smash the right mold down on people's lives, that they'll just 
get their lives together or something like that. Um, but what we see from, here from Paul is something very different. What we see here from Paul is this like genuine relationship. Like he really wants to invest his whole life into these people. And yes, he wants to see them formed into the image of Christ. But two things. One, he also knows that he needs to be formed into the image of Christ. And so he doesn't, uh, he doesn't see them as like projects. He sees them as family members. Um, and, then, and then the other thing is just that, that, that it's all about this mutual relationship. So he's seeing uh, this work of faith, this labor of love, this steadfastness of hope come to play in the context of just a genuine uh, affection for one another and um, you know that he just really cares about them. And I'm really challenged by that. When I think about the discipleship relationships that I have in my life is uh, am I too pragmatic? Am I, am I too interested in just churning out um, a mold of a person that so that they'll look different or be different or act different? Or do I genuinely care about this person and want for God to be glorified in their life and for, for our relationship to grow in, in depth and affection? And I feel like that's what really led into your, your next section here. After ta- walking us through the faith, love, and the hope, you bring up two important things in chapter three. It was uh, prayer and then follow-up. So you talked about the, the need in our discipleship relationships to con- constantly pray for people. And then maybe just like a often overlooked simple thing, which is just uh, remembering that we're all on a journey, all on a process, and that a, a, a big key in making disciples is just following up with the people that we've, that we've been introduced to. So why don't you show us a couple things from chapter three that led you to those two ideas of prayer and then follow up as it relates to discipleship? Yeah, so I used the entire section of verses one through 13, but um, a couple of verses in there that really stick out, uh, specifically verses six through eight, um, are very important when talking about following up. Um, the fact that Paul is very adamant about going back and reuniting with these people in Thessalonica, even through um, all of these afflictions that they've come under and things that are keeping him in the city of Athens. Um, also, if we look later in verses 11 through 13, Verse 11, Paul is praying fervently for God specifically to clear the way and remove the obstacles that Satan has put in his path so that he can go back and see these people face to face and truly give them what they are lacking. So Paul recognizes that there is an enemy and one of the things that he wants to do to follow up with these people is just go back and see them face to face. And what he does to kind of um, combat that and fight against that is he is praying to God that those obstacles would be alleviated so that he can go back to these people and just check on their state of mind and how they are doing. And then it continues in chapter 3 verse 12 where Paul is continuing to pray for their love for one another. He's praying that their love would grow more and more and that they would see each other like brothers and as friends and as people that are truly working towards the same purpose. Love is a huge theme in 1 Thessalonians. It feels like nothing can be done without the love of Christ here. 
Mm-hmm. And then uh, verse 13, it just continues. Paul is saying that we should, you know, do away with our self-centered personality and that we should truly just strive towards um, holiness in Christ Jesus, that we should strive towards um, imitating that image of Christ, like he states earlier in First Thessalonians, that they are imitators of Paul, but they are also imitating Jesus Christ and striving towards the holiness that only he provides. So Paul, he really wants to go see the people in Thessalonica again. He feels like he didn't have enough time with them to begin with. There are things that are still lacking in their faith, um, and that is important to him, to go back and see them and to help them strive towards God. But he's also um, just relentless in his prayer that God would eliminate obstacles, that he would um, just enhance their love for one another, and also that they would strive towards holiness, that they would strive towards imitating Jesus Christ. So Paul is taking those next steps and really trying to enforce and reestablish, you know, what he's already taught them, mm-hmm. which is a big part of the discipleship process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I um, Verse 8 is a verse that, re- that I really love in this chapter. This is chapter 3, verse 8. Um, if you've ever been discipled by someone or if you've ever discipled someone else, uh, there's a good chance that verse 8 was at work. It says, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Um, man, just to know that there have, been, there have been people in my life who cared that much about me, that their heart was just wrapped up in my following Jesus and that they found their really like happiness. I don't want to make, I don't want to say that they didn't have their happiness in Christ, but there's, a, there's an aspect, I, I guess I could say, of their happiness, their joy, their hope, uh, in how I'm doing and whether or not I'm walking with God or not. And then now that I'm discipling others, um, I feel the same way. Um, I wish sometimes that my heart was more pure and there's definitely times when my heart does get out of whack, but I just love, um, that Paul is so, so interested, so caring, so loving, um, that he would say that for him, if they are walking with God, if their faith is firm, then he is living. That's life to him, uh, for, to know that the people he's invested in are holding fast to the Lord. And so I'm not sure that that's really even a, I don't know how to say, it's not an aspect of discipleship. It's not a characteristic. It's more just what it feels like to be in that relationship. Uh, what it feels like to just really, not just care for somebody, but care about them in the Lord, care about their they're walking with God, care about their holiness. And that's really what leads to chapter four. You just kind of barely tiptoed us into chapter four tonight where at, in conclusion. And it's almost like if chapters two and three are all about Paul and how he is conducting himself and how he feels and how he's praying for the people that he's discipling, it kind of felt like chapter four was then, what were they supposed to do? How, are, how was the person being discipled? supposed to respond. And that's how you took us into the topic of sanctification. Uh, you gave a clear definition of sanctification. Why don't you share that? And then uh, maybe we'll read a chunk of this section 
and um, just see if there's anything that, that we want to highlight. So what was your definition of sanctification? Yeah, so my definition for sanctification was the process in which the old ways and the old habits are increasingly done away with and replaced with new ways that fit the service of God. Yeah, so where where um we actually get the word sanctification in this passage. And so I just want to read it and then then we'll make a few comments and and we'll be be out of your way. Uh, chapter four, verse one says, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these matters as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, uh, man, from the standpoint of the person being discipled, all of us are on a journey of discipleship. All of us who are Christians are being made disciples of Jesus. And so how does sanctification relate to discipleship? How would you, how would you see the link between this topic of sanctification and the, the overarching topic of t- tonight, discipleship? So one, one big part of sanctification as the, like being part of the discipleship process is that it is an ongoing process that lasts as long as we are living. So as long as we are having relationship with other believers, we will continue to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So one of the ways that I saw the process of sanctification in relation to fellowship with other believers is that as long as God is working in our lives, we should have relationship with other believers. But we know that as we live a life um, alongside other people, there will be sin. There will be um, kind of thorns in our side. There will be temptations. And what we truly need to do is exactly what Paul did is lead people to the example of Christ. And I feel like as long as we are living in a sinful world, it's impossible to attain the perfection that Jesus fulfilled. So as long as we are living, we have something to strive for. And I just feel like sanctification is that process of being molded into the image of Jesus. Um, If it weren't for Jesus we would still, you know, be hopeless. We would still um, lack an example, a human example of what sanctification and holiness and purity truly looks like. Um, But since we do have that example, we know that sanctification is just molding ourselves into the image of Jesus Christ, growing in love for one another, growing in hate for our sin, um, and just truly striving 
to become vessels of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. Um, and as we just work in that sanctification process, we find our weapons against sin. We find our weapons against Satan. Um, we get closer to the word of God and we get closer to the attributes of God that we so want to imitate. Um, so just as long as we are living and having fellowship with other believers, sanctification um, will be a part of discipleship because we need relationship with other people to kind of just keep us accountable and to also teach us new things about the word. So if you're interested in discipleship, if you want to know what we're talking about here at the church when we talk about discipleship, First Thessalonians is a great book because it both shows us uh, some of the characteristics, the heart, the aspects of what it means to be a disciple maker, uh, but then it also gets into what it means to be a good follower, what it means to be a good receiver of the word. Um, we saw in Paul this just example of what it looks like to, yes, share the message of the gospel, but also share your life uh, with someone you're discipling. And then I think we saw from the other side, like when you're the person being discipled, uh, what it looks like to walk in faith, to turn from idols, to embrace the word of God, to pursue sanctification, um, to grow in love. So all these things, it's, it's, just, it's a great picture of what it can look like when God uses us in one another's lives. Uh, none of, like you said, none of us are Jesus, but that's what makes this call amazing is that we uh, get to be empowered by his spirit to do his work. And we, we get called up into this awesome mission of making disciples who make disciples while for the rest of our lives, we'll still be disciples uh, who are growing in our own sanctification and becoming more and more like Jesus. So uh, we're super excited next week. We're gonna be talking about the day of the Lord and the second coming of Jesus. And so I'm sure we'll have all the answers. Everything will be correct. We'll get to heaven one day and, and everything Evan says will be exactly true. And that'll be awesome. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, again, again, if you, if you weren't with us, that's totally fine. You can always just jump in if, if you want to come on a Sunday night. And if not, uh, we'll be coming back to you with another podcast next week with another round of First Thessalonians. Uh, we love you guys and hope you have a great week. Talk to you later. Bye.